This is part of what it means to be in the world, but not of it. It is contributing compassion for the poor and the oppressed, love and advocacy for the disenfranchised. A broader vision for humanity as created in the image of God with intrinsic worth. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Welcome, it's good to see you all. My name's Rob, talking about the Jesus way. Today, I wanna talk about politics, how about that? Let's just get all the triggers out and let's just go for it. Um, I wanna start with two quotes. One you heard three weeks ago, but first this from D.A. Carson. God's grace can reach anyone. God is not impressed by the public philosophies, political clout, and extravagant wealth that the word so greatly admires. Modern Western evangelicalism is deeply infested with the virus of triumphalism, and the resulting illness destroys humility, minimizes grace, and offers far too much homage to the money and influence and wisdom of our day. Tim Mackey, this quote from three weeks ago, a normal, normal kingdom would be propped up by people with authority and power. A normal kingdom celebrates strength, but Jesus' kingdom doesn't. Instead, he celebrates weakness. And we talked about this upside-down kingdom. And I want to pick up on that theme and again and talk to you specifically about politics in light of what Jesus did and said and how he walked out this way. What does it mean to view this cultural and political moment through the lens of Christ's kingdom and not the other way around? Ready? Okay, good, good, good. Uh, Mark 12, if you wanna turn there in your Bible or your Bible app, or if you have really good eyesight, you can look at the screen. Let me give you a bit of a backstory what's going on in Mark chapter 12. First of all, Jesus, when he came on the scene, he came into a world that was filled with a lot of turmoil and a lot of tension. Israel was a hotbed of all sorts of political tension. So if you, if you review the history of Israel, what you find is that um, the Maccabees had a revolt and uh, because of that revolt, Rome set a king over the Jewish people who was a puppet king named Herod. And Herod was all about himself and he built all of these palaces and all of these fortresses and he sucked the people of Israel dry of their resources and of their hope in a lot of ways. So in that, you had rising up um, a, a lot of zealots who were wanting to overthrow the Roman government. And you had um, religious elite who were trying to keep people on this path of the law and not fall into, um, into Greek or Roman thought. So you had this milieu of just all of these really, really volatile 
sects of people and tribes and um, political systems that were all vying for power. And that is where Jesus starts his ministry. So in light of that, if you look at the scope of what Jesus said about power and what he said about authority and what he said about kingdom, that's why almost every week we talk about the upside down nature of Christ's kingdom. It is completely countercultural. There was a tax revolt because the Romans had taxed the Jewish people so heavily in order to pay for their aqueducts and roads. In 6 AD, there was a revolt, and that revolt lasted in some form or fashion for the next 60 years. And right in the middle of that, you have this passage. This week of Jesus' life is the week before he was crucified on the cross. And in this week, it started on Sunday with um, him coming into town, not on a war horse like the king of the Maccabees had done 100 years before, but he came into town riding a donkey. And the people came out and they proclaimed him king. And their idea of king was one that would overthrow the Roman government and they would be free of taxation once and for all. And then a couple of days later, Jesus comes into the temple and he looks around and then he comes back in the temple the next day and he overturns the tables of the money changers. And he says, My, this is a, a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. And then he questioned the authority of the religious leaders. And so they're, they're pretty ticked off at this point when we come to this passage in Mark 12, verse 13. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? This is the trap. It's ironic that the Herodians and the Pharisees were teaming up because they hated each other. They represented two completely different worldviews. The Pharisees being one that represented the law and keeping the rules. And the Herodians, one that were all about King Herod in all of his palaces and all of his wealth and all of his stuff, right? But they had a mutual enemy in Jesus. And so they come and they set a trap and they start with flattery. We know you are a man of integrity. We know you teach truth. So here's the question. And it's a binary question. Should we pay taxes or not? It's like asking a politician if they have stopped embezzling money and hitting their wife, right? There's no right answer to that question. It's a trap. If Jesus embraces the tax, then he's no Messiah. He is no friend of the people of Israel. But if Jesus opposes the tax, then now they have grounds with which to arrest him and turn him over to Roman authorities. So Jesus will either lose his reputation and his 
influence or he will lose his life. So for these guys, it's a win-win, win. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Let's talk about the coin. It was a denarius. It was one day's wage. It was considered the emperor's property. It represented his power, his authority, his wealth, but also his deity. It's interesting that Jesus didn't have one of these denarius on him. But the Jewish leaders did in the temple where it was illegal. Their allegiance was for self-preservation and power. Now, a couple of things about what Jesus does are very rabbi-ish. He answers their question with a question. And he does that all the way through his ministry. And he's brilliant. And I love it every single time. He says, show me the coin. And he says, whose image, whose inscription? And the image on the front was Caesar's, specifically Tiberius, who was wearing a victor's crown of divinity. And the inscription around it, if you can read it, it said, Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the god Augustus. And on the back was the image of Pax with the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest or chief priest. So she was the high priest of peace. How ironic that the son of God and true high priest of peace, who the people have just proclaimed king, is holding a silver coin of a king who claims to be the son of a God and the high priestess of Roman peace. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, here's your answer. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. To the Romans, everything belonged to Caesar. To the Hebrews, everything belonged to God. And so what do you do with that? Jesus is inviting the listeners to choose allegiances. And what do we do with that? What does it mean in our context, in our time, in this cultural and political moment to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to give to God what belongs to God? What is it? What is the way to be on the way of Jesus? Well, there are three options represented in these few verses. The first option is not in it or of it. And this is really the way of the Pharisees. They were all about sectarianism. They were about separating themselves, being guardians of righteousness, being keepers of morality. And Jesus called their bluff time after time after time. He said, you hypocrites. 
You clean the outside of the dish, but inside you're filthy. You're like, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're snakes. They were self-protective and they were power-hungry. But their way was the way of us versus them. The Herodians on the other side were in it and of it. Their approach was one of syncretism, of assimilation. We become them. They were all about being enmeshed with Rome. Herod was a puppet king. And so he was the king of the Jews, but he had no regard for the Jewish God or the Jewish people. He was self-promoting and power-hungry. So not in it or of it versus in it and of it. But of course, there's a third way. And that is in it, but not of it. It is the way of Jesus. And these are his words in John 17. He is praying for his disciples and he's praying for us, his church. In his prayer, he says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Make them holy, consecrated with the truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. In it, but not of it. Let's break those down. In it, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. John Tyson is a pastor in New York. And he wrote, Christians should recognize and obey the government even if you don't agree with them. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. He says that governments are part of God's created order and that they bring order in justice and virtue and prosperity and safety. And if you read through the New Testament, you get a sense that we are called to be good citizens wherever we are, even in the midst of an oppressive regime like Rome. Matthew 17, Jesus paid his taxes and he encouraged his disciples to do that as well. The way he paid his taxes was really creative, you know. Go fishing, open up the fish's mouth, and there you find the coin. I wish we could do that. We can't, but he's Jesus. Okay, get over it. So in uh, Romans 13, Paul says to those living in Rome where being a Christian wasn't exactly easy, he encourages submission to the governing authorities to pay taxes and to offer respect and honor. In Peter, in his letter to the church, Peter, who was about to be killed, about to be martyred, about to be crucified upside down for his faith by the Roman government, tells believers that part of their service to the common good is to fear God and honor the Roman emperor. So what does that look like for us? to be in it. Uh, I think it starts with repentance. To repent of both our passivity and our spiritual elitism. 
to repent of our cynical withdrawal. And our assumption that we think we're right. Everyone thinks they're right. And when that's our paradigm, when that's our lens, then we end up vilifying anyone that's not us. So we have repentance to do. Repenting of both of our cynicism, our passivity, and our spiritual elitism. But repentance is, comes from kindness, God's kindness to us. But repentance leads to fruit. So what is the fruit of repentance? It is contributing. It is contributing a, a broader vision for humanity as created in the image of God with intrinsic worth. I'm everyone. It is contributing compassion for the poor and the oppressed, love and advocacy for the disenfranchised. It is contributing a a larger picture of why things are the way they are. The gospel is the only thing that makes sense of our cultural moments because it couches it in the whole storyline of God. We contribute the power and the presence of God through prayer and fasting and standing in the gap. So we repent and we contribute and then we care about what Jesus cares about. And I was thinking, as we make our list of what we care about Jesus' list is both shorter than ours and longer than ours. He was asked, okay, of all the, the commandments, which are the most important? And he narrowed them all down to two, right? Love God and love your neighbor. By saying love God, he is narrowing the list of our affections. He is narrowing the list of our allegiances to one thing, to one person, and that is God. But loving neighbor, he's actually expanding our definition of neighbor. So he has a very short list when it comes to our allegiances and affections. He has a very broad list when it comes to actually expressing love and compassion. Jesus' list of people to express love and compassion to is way longer than mine. I tend to be very selective with my list. Jesus is not. Philippians 2 says we are to look out not only for our own interests, that's kind of a given, but to look out for the interest of others. Do you remember three weeks ago? Hopefully you remember three weeks ago. Uh, I know it's a chaotic world, but um, what we talked about was this upside-down kingdom, and we explored what does God get angry about? Because maybe that's what we should get angry about. Because often our anger is about us not getting our way or us getting blocked in some way um, from what we think will make us happy or fulfilled or content. But God gets angry about very different things. And so maybe we should align with his anger 
Because he gets angry when the helpless and the oppressed are mistreated, abused, neglected, murdered, and forgotten. God gets angry at child slavery and abortion and sex trafficking. God gets angry at the mistreatment of immigrants. That should make us angry as well. He gets angry at racism and bigotry and poverty. And so we should care. And we should pray. Jesus said to pray for our enemies. Listening to a pastor from Queens, he said, we pray for our enemies, all right? We pray for their demise. Jesus said, no, 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 flip it. Have this kind of prayer. In Jeremiah 29, Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem and he, he brings thousands of people, Jewish exiles, to live in the mega city of Babylon in the midst of godless culture. At first, they refuse, and they camp out outside of the city, away from all of the mess, away from the milieu of godlessness. But God says, no, I want you to move into the city. I want you to to plant gardens. I want you to build houses. I want you to have kids. Just be a part of the city and go beyond that. Actually pray for the flourishing of that city. Action and attitude. To pray for the shalom, the economic flourishing, the health, the attitude of the city. Hold your distinctive beliefs and practices, but enter in with me. They were not to assimilate. They were not to lose their identity as followers of God. But they were to use their resources of faith to love their neighbor and to love the city. C.S. Lewis said, Christians are indeed citizens of God's heavenly city, but the citizens of God's city are always the best possible citizens of their earthly city. They walk in the steps of the one who laid down his life for his opponents. Early Christians said to Romans, Rome's Caesar in the, at the end of the first century, into the second century, we will take care of your sick. We will feed your hungry. We will shelter your widows. We will adopt and raise your children with special needs. We will take care of your pregnant mothers. And by the third century AD, the fabric of Roman society was transformed. One historian said, we've been infected by love. In the midst of the pandemic, wouldn't it be cool if the church was known as those who are carriers of love. We've been infected by love. Paul says in Romans 12, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. It's all in. 
It's heart, body, and soul, and mind committed to the Lord. The way we study, the way we do research, the way we work, the way we interact with our families, the way we spend our time, the way we do our conversations and our relationships, and our politics. Everything devoted to the lordship of Jesus in his kingdom, to see things from his perspective, his shalom. Our address is both here and there. We're dual citizens. So we must be in it. But we also must not be of it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Again, John Tyson wrote, Christians should recognize and resist government. No nation is ever worthy of full compliance. Christians have conviction that resists and humility that suffers. That's brilliant. Christians have conviction that resists and humility that suffers. As you read through the book of Acts, that's the picture you get. Acts 4, Peter and John are brought before the, the religious elite, and they brought out all the brass. You know, it's like these are the who's who of the Jewish religious world. And they said, you gotta stop talking about Jesus. And they're putting pressure on him. We're gonna jail you. It's gonna get worse. And these guys stand up and they said, do what you want. But we're not going to obey you. We're going to obey Jesus. We can't shut up about what we've seen and heard and experienced. So do what you want. But we are all in with Jesus. Again, Romans 12, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Don't assimilate. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you. He develops well-formed maturity in you. That means we become discerning. We become observant. It's like getting the Christmas lights out every year to see which ones are, are dim or burned out. To call a lie a lie and to call truth truth, both out there and in here. To have, in John Stott's words, a double influence on society a negative influence by arresting its decay and a positive influence by bringing light into the darkness. He said, it's one thing to stop the spread of evil and it is another to promote the spread of truth, beauty, and 
goodness. It's not being conformed to our culture. It's not being at, too at home. Yeah. In this upside down kingdom of the world. So, a couple questions for us. What is spiritually forming us? Can we get really honest with that question? What is spiritually shaping us? Caitlin Scheiss, I think is how you pronounce her name, wrote a book called The Liturgy of Politics. That we, in the church, we have liturgies, but there is a liturgy of politics. Which liturgy is shaping our lives and our community? Let's get really honest. Do I spend more time in news feeds than I do listening to Jesus? Second question, where is our primary allegiance? Jim Wallace wrote, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. Go deeper in the love of Jesus. Rich Viadas wrote, if any Christian fits neatly into a political party, that Christian does not fit neatly into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God transcends any political party. So our new primary loyalty, our new primary allegiance is to Jesus, to his mission, to his people, to his way. One writer said, we should have more in common with a Christian from another country than with any American who's not a believer. Let's quit Americanizing faith. What is our posture as the body of Christ? Are we pharisaical, the not in it or of it camp, us versus them, where it's easier to shove opinions on people than actually to listen, where it's about being right rather than loving the one who is truth? Or are we in the Herodian camp, the in it and of it, where we are just assimilating with whatever everyone else is doing? We become them. It becomes easier to assimilate than to stand out, to be subversive. It becomes more about being accepted than being distinctive. Or are we choosing this third way, the way of Jesus in it, but not of it? It's a creative third way. It is having a distinctive flavor that is a bit salty. Bringing both flavor to the blandness of the blah, 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 and also protecting from decay. It is a posture of creative humility, laying down our need to be right. It is a posture of confident hope that we are not those who shrink back, but those who walk in humble confidence, who don't 
become paralyzed by anxiety and fear and don't jump on conspiracy trains, but keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And it is a posture of holy ambivalence. I love that phrase, holy ambivalence. Not too passive and not too obsessed. Not too excited and not too grieved. Just attached to Jesus, no matter who wins an election. I want to just close with this quote from Cameron and Stuart McAllister. This just caught me so well. Um, Our mission, they said, is to be Christ's witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And we go about this business with full knowledge that he is returning. And when he returns, he will judge the living and the dead, and he will also wipe away every tear. Neither justice nor mercy will be forsaken. And for this reason, our political thinking is never a counsel of despair, but one of fierce stubborn and realistic hope, hope born of the conviction that our Lord has not abandoned his throne, but Christ's ascension also protects us from the kind of zealous overcommitment to earthly causes that easily calcify into idolatry. If our final hope is in Christ and his coming kingdom, that hope remains secure even in the face of surrounding calamities regarding our cultural engagement, political or otherwise, holy ambivalence means we avoid total immersion while remaining invested. This is part of what it means to be in the world, but not of him.